Let me begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we recognize and admit our inability when it comes to sometimes grasping and applying the words that you have spoken to us. The fact of the matter is we need the Holy Spirit to come upon us, to open the eyes of the heart, to lead us into the spiritual truth that is laid out before us in your word. So, Father, I want to pray for a receptiveness in our own hearts today, that what we hear would take root, would sprout forth, and would bear much fruit. So, Lord, may your will then be accomplished today. May your name be lifted up and honored in the relationships that we have, most importantly, between a husband and a wife. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm turning my Bibles today to 1 Peter chapter 3. Would you turn there? First Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Why don't you stand with me as I read? Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You can be seated. Earlier this week, President Trump delivered his most significant speech of the year. Right, the annual State of the Union Address. Now, if you didn't catch it, hopefully you read it. Anybody get a chance? Oh boy, not too many. Listen, you should. You should know where you're at as a nation. You're living here, right? And what the present aims of the president are. Now, the original intent of the speech, by the way, did you know what it was for? It was for the president actually to keep Congress informed and up to speed about what was happening in the country. And that's why it's always held in the House chamber, right? When he delivers his speech, it's, he's in Congress. Did you know that the Constitution of the United States actually mandates this action on the president's part? He has to do it. Okay? In Article 
to section 3 of our Constitution. It says this, He shall, the President, from time to time give to Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. I'm going to keep that up there for a minute. Today we're going to take a little detour off the Daniel track, of which we are nearing the end. My intent is next week to wrap it up. But as important and as essential as it is for the President to talk to Congress about the state of the Union, it is equally, if not more necessary, that from time to time I talk to you about the state of your Union. I'm talking about the Union that God made between you and your spouse when you covenanted together to become husband and wife. Shall we all give a report? The state of my union is... What is it? What words come to mind? Now, I I hope this is not the case, but I find more often than not that words such as this come to mind. Distant. Cold. Take it for granted, cheap, self-centered, uninterested, divided, or how about lost? Is the union lost? It's there, but it's, it's not really there at all. Well, every marital union can and and it will disintegrate into words like this when it's left alone. And we've all been there, those of us who are married, and you may be there right now. And the question then is, are you content to just keep chugging along, completely oblivious to the present state of things? Right? It'll fix itself. Is that right? Just like that toilet magically fixed itself, right? Doesn't work that way, does it? Well, maybe you've both grown complacent with a stale relationship. You know, you've just come to accept it the way it is. Well, I guess this is just how it's going to be, right? I don't want to bother rocking the boat now. Listen very carefully. You need to rock the boat sometimes. Because it's not just about getting through. Chugging along all the while. There's nothing Christ-like about you and your spouse. And that's missing the mark. Because the mark of marriage is that Christ, Jesus, is displayed in you and your spouse. Therefore, think about it this way. The gospel itself is either being exalted or muddied by your state of your marriage. And that's the issue at the heart of this. Not whether or not you can live with it. Listen, you can put up with a lot. But what does it say about Christ and the kind of relationship that I should have with Him. Let me ask you this. Are you okay with a distant, cold, take-it-for-granted walk with Jesus? No, I don't want that. Then why would you be okay with it in a relationship that's meant to display Jesus? That's what marriage is. Well, this was Peter's concern as he comes to it in the third chapter of his letter. Now, as an apostle, right, 
commissioned by Jesus Christ, he's not just sharing what he thinks is necessary and expedient for marriages, but what the Spirit of God, who always speaks the truth, knows is both necessary and expedient for those who are married. And before we look at these verses before us, it's helpful to see that God's word here for Christian husbands and wives falls into a larger discussion okay, about how Christians in general need to behave in the world. Remember, Peter's writing to first-generation Christians. Think about that. This is the first in their family to put their trust in Jesus. That means they are not in a Christian society. Right? Their world does not reflect Christian principles whatsoever, right? And neither did the families in which this gospel is coming into. So these believers are experiencing a, a newfound freedom in Christ, and yet they still lived, right, in a world that had not changed. Well, because of Jesus, did they now have the right not to obey the, you know, those ungodly authorities. Hey, Christ is my king now. Why do I have to obey you who don't follow God? Or could slaves now free in Jesus, right? I'm free. Who cares? I can rebel against this earthly master of mine. Christ is my master. Or should wives, still yoked to a godless husband, should they rise up as now the heads of their homes? Hey, Christ is my husband. I'm taking charge here. Did the Christian, because of his or her ultimate freedom and allegiance to Jesus, now have the right to refuse and to lord it over those who were, well, earthly speaking, of a higher rank? Well, Peter's answer to all of them is no. Instead, he instructs the Christian over and over, be subject to those who are over you here on earth. And then he says, even those who are unjust. You say, well, why? Well, he, here he says, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake. There it is. For the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's chapter 2, verse 13. What does that mean, for the Lord's sake? Well, the fact of the matter is that God has ordained, right, the order of society. Who sets up governments? Who puts kings in their place? God does, right? To punish those who do wrong. And who designed the family and the roles of the family? God did, right? So to go against this would be to go against God's order. But even more to the point, did Jesus, the Lord of all, right, God of very God, did He assert His own authority over God the Father's will. No. Instead, we see Him subjecting Himself to the Heavenly Father, right? Not my will, but your will be done. And then as a man, He even subjected Himself to human rulers. Pilate, right? Herod, so forth. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. His way was to submit Himself. And by the way, that's how He saved us. To be like Jesus who was meek, that's a great word, which is power under control, is to submit to those who are over you. Well, what about those who abuse their rank, right? Well, even then, Peter says, 
You need to be subject to them. You say, well, why? Because especially during those times when you bear up under unjust punishment with some grace and with kindness, you know what you're doing? You're putting Christ's power on display. This is what Jesus' love is capable to do, right? Suffering puts on Christ's, puts His power on display. In fact, it's when the pressure is on that God shows others just how amazing His transforming work is. Right? When we don't react the way the world so often does. right? They say things like, well, I mistreated them, and yet they still speak kindly to me. What is this? This is different. So God never excuses us out of our place in the world. He calls us to infuse His grace into the rank in which we find ourselves. Lift Him up. So for this reason, when it comes to the relationship of marriage, Peter approaches it first through the lens of the wife, right? Because she's coming at it from the harder role. The role of ranking under her husband. And so he instructs them in chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. In short, what he's saying is this. Be Jesus... To your husband. Be willing to humbly affirm his place as head of the home. Recognize that. Even though he may not be worthy of being it. Now let's be clear a little bit about, about the call okay, to be submissive. Number one, it does not mean that a wife should obey her husband when that obedience would mean sinning. This is not a call to be a mindless follower. One's allegiance to God always takes precedence. Right? That's the same with the governing authorities. You obey them to that point. But when it crosses the line, when they're telling you to do something that contradicts God's will, then humbly and with gentleness you say, sorry, but I cannot do that. Secondly, it does not mean that a wife has to say has no say, right? Or cannot influence her husband in any way. Right? Listen, the point of her submission here in this passage is to effect change in him, right? To win her husband because she loves him. So I hope that my wife does not stop influencing me because she has to be submissive. No. She's winning me over into Christ-like leadership. And what every husband needs is a Christ-like wife who doesn't give up on her man, no matter where he's at, spiritually speaking. Now, you do this foremost, Peter stresses, how? By your conduct, right? Your conduct. So that even if some do not obey the word, meaning they're against your faith, they may be one without a word, how? By the conduct of of their wives. And then he explains what kind of conduct he has in mind, right? In verse 2. When they see your, and here it is, your respectful and pure conduct. Okay. Now the story of Lee Strobel comes to mind. You know his story? Wrote The Case for Christ and many other books after that as a pastor now. Well, Lee was an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune. Okay, I think went to law school and whatnot. He was also a settled atheist. Okay? But a few years into his marriage, I don't know how far along, but his wife, Leslie, 
became a Christian. Her conversion bothered him so much that he sought to undermine the faith that she now ascribed to. Right, and he was his aim was to show that this is just a hoax; it's a farce. Okay, but along the way, what silently disarmed his defenses, okay, in addition to what he was learning as he investigated it, was the way that his wife now carried herself. Okay, he 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 says this. This is his testimony: how she behaved toward him, despite his jabs, despite his discontentment. She was joyful. She was kind, right? She was a good wife and a good mother. And if Christianity was not true, then how do you explain this transformation going on in her? It just doesn't make sense. And in God's time, he eventually surrendered to the truth about Christ because in large in part of how she acted. So she won him by her respectful, her pure conduct. And if such conduct, listen, can win an atheist... Okay, who's opposed to God, how much more the man who believes but may lack the maturity to lead his family. Yeah. Listen, if you want him to take initiative, don't rob it from him. Affirm his God-given place as head this way, with pure, with respectful conduct. What Peter says, I want you to do this. Stop focusing so much on him and do this. Focus on adorning that inner person. You see that? See, Peter understands the desires of wives to want to look their best. He knows that. The focus on those the outward appearances, right? And you can, in women, you can use that to influence your man. But he says in verse 3, Do not let your adorning be external. The idea is merely external. Okay? The braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. His point is, not that you have to avoid any kind of external attention, okay? He's not saying, oh, just let yourself go. Who cares, right? No, he doesn't say, don't groom yourself. The idea is, don't merely focus on your physical appearance. Give more attention to the inner person of the heart. Okay? Have you made the inner person attractive? You can turn his head. I know you can do that. But this is about turning his heart to the Lord. How does the proverb go? Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now look at these words. A gentle and quiet spirit. What an interesting way of affirming a husband into the leadership God has called him to. Maybe you're thinking as a woman, this would not be the way that I'd go about it. Ladies, let me tell you something. Okay, This is something that I believe is generally true about women. You have been created with an inner beauty that differentiates you from men. This much is evident because God has made women as a helper. You know this back from Genesis, right? And we just learned yesterday, it was a great reminder in our marriage enrichment time, that this is a word that reflects the very nature of who God is. God is our helper. And it's not like an assistant. It means to give strength that is vitally needed. Okay? 
One pastor counselor in his years of ministry noted this trend, okay? In all his counseling to couples, this is what he found, okay? I'll put it up here for you. He wrote this, In almost every case, a wife approaches marriage with a deeper understanding of and passion for loyal love. He went on to say that nearly all couples agreed on this one thing. You know what they said? No one believed the husbands demonstrated loyal love in their marriages. And you know what? This fits with the way God has made woman as a loyal helper. In other words, you reflect the, this kind of inner beauty from God himself. He made you that way. And when a husband is exposed to that inner beauty, it's like a spotlight on all that he doesn't measure up to. Everything he lacks is brought out by you. The problem is, we husbands often look at that beauty and we become intimidated and we become controlling or we become defensive. When we should, in humility, be driven to God's grace and mercy. But ladies, your very presence is enough to make men feel how much they don't measure up to. That's all you got to do is show up, and we'll start feeling that way. Because you have this inner beauty that exudes this, in the Old Testament, hesed, right? This loyal love. God made you with that. And you need to recognize that in your design. That's part of who He made you. And Peter's admonition to you is this. He says, I want you to relate to your husband then with more kindness and rest. Quiet. Instead of feeling the need to compel him about every area he lacks. When a husband struggles to love you, you don't have to try so hard to make his failures known. Okay? Your presence is enough to convict him. Of course you have something to say. But what Peter's telling you here is, don't rely on your own exertion or bluntness to affect change in this guy. He says this, gentleness and quiet, that's the route. That's not your gut response, <laughs> right? I want to bash him over the head sometimes. But what does gentleness and quiet show? It shows that what you really believe is that God, your hope is in him. That God can do the work in him. Right? And men, you need to start responding well to the inner beauty that God has given your wife. Because it puts us to shame. The way that they love and the way we don't. Gentle, quiet spirit. It's a work of God because it requires faith in God. It's not your gut response. It takes intention to say, you know, I'm going to trust God with this guy. It takes faith to say, I'm going to rest. I'm going to be gentle toward him instead. Right? And that beauty is enough to undo us. You say, well, you don't know my husband. You don't know what he's like. Well, maybe you don't know the power of the gospel. That's what I'm going to ask you today. God can. And you say, I want you to trust my way. That's why he says that such a spirit is precious in God's sight. This is what matters to me, God says. Not using your physical appearance or your words to exert change on him, but, but your gentleness, quiet, rest, trust in me. Okay? There's a contrast that Peter's drawing out here, right, between what is seen 
but ultimately fleeting. It's not going to matter in the end, right? Clothes, the hair, the jewelry, and what is unseen, but which is imperishable. Okay, this, this hidden person of the heart. God looks at that. We know that. Okay. Now, whether you're listening to this as married or not, the question applies to all. Okay. Have you been adorning the inner person of the heart with these things? To choose to behave with such rest and with such gentleness, even with an unloving husband, takes faith. But as the scripture says, you cannot please God without faith. It is this trust in Him that God says, it's precious to me when you trust me like that. And He delights in that and He will honor that. Now, would you like to see some examples of such faith? Well, you know what one is. One is Jesus. Okay, if you need an example to look at, ladies... Look to your Savior. Because that word, that word gentleness, that particular word that's used here in 1 Peter, was only used two other times in the New Testament. And guess who was talked about? Jesus. So he displays that gentleness unlike anybody else. But Peter says, if you need another, i got an example for you. Okay, verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So, note this, right? These women of old are known and remembered for what? Who their husband was? How many children they had? How fit they were? No, but this. They hoped in God. Right? And among those, these old holy women of old who were married, they showed this hope through submission, right? Even to less than perfect men like Abraham. You know him. Goodness. And the incident that, well, Sarah, by the way, who was a beautiful woman, still adorned herself with this kind of respectful and gentle attitude. The incident that Peter draws attention to when she calls him Lord For most of us, we would have never even noticed this. But Peter highlights it. You know where it comes from? Look in Genesis chapter 18. We'll just take a quick look there. This is where Peter quotes this from. This is his example of how Sarah submitted to Abraham. Genesis chapter 18. At this point, they are well advanced in years. Okay? They still have no child. And the context of this chapter is they now have three visitors, okay? heavenly visitors. And in verse 9, they said to him, to Abraham, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. Verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Verse 12, So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, and here it is, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure. That's it. That's the quote he's talking about. Why does Peter make a point about a seemingly incidental comment? 
I think it's because it demonstrated how she normally talked about her husband. Did you see how she says, he's my Lord, even when no one else is listening? She isn't talking to anybody except herself. Now, the text, by the way, isn't saying that you need to call your husband Lord or Master. Okay. That's just how she, in her cultural context, showed in her heart that she honored him. She respected him. It's such a commonplace thing, but Peter highlights that this was a, the way of the normal way for Sarah to relate to her husband. Okay, how could she do that? Well, because her hope was ultimately in God, and such hope, Peter goes on to say in First Peter, creates a fearlessness in you. Okay, right? You are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is. Frightening. You say, how in the world is that possible? It's possible when you have hope in his promises. That creates a fearlessness in you. Okay. So, ladies, that's for you. All right, guys, your turn. You only get one verse. Short and simple, right? Just the way you like it. But it's so necessary, so urgent. So, being that it's one verse, don't get too excited. You need to take it all the more to heart. You should memorize this verse. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And why is this so important? so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husband, there's a lot at stake in how you treat your wife. Your union with God, okay, your fellowship with Him stands to be hindered if you neglect to be Christ-like in your home. Now, it's not that hard to understand why, is it? Should God give His understanding ear to you when you're calling out to Him, when all the while you haven't given your understanding ear to her. That's called being a hypocrite, isn't it? So God will interrupt you, spiritually speaking, if you don't take time to know your wife. You find it interesting that Peter commands us to live with your wife? I don't think the problem was that they weren't living under the same roof. I think the problem is that you can be there and not really be there at all. Right? Because here's how you're supposed to live with them. In an understanding way. Okay, there it is. That is, you need to live with them with some tact and with some sensitivity. Peter says, you need to study your wife. Do you know your wife's heart? Well, here's a good litmus test, okay? Let me put it up here. Can you, right now, write down her current likes Dislikes and dreams. You better start thinking. She's going to ask you on the way home in the car. She is. To live in an understanding way is going to make, it's going to take some intentional conversation and some 
reading of her demeanor. She wants you to understand her face. Okay. Hey, what if you did this? Hey, are you are you discouraged in your faith or are you or at work right now? Oh, hey, how can I pray for you? Or hey, I can tell you're overwhelmed. Um, let me take care of that. Let me do this for you. Hey, you older men, put down the newspaper. And you younger men, put down the phone, right? And initiate some meaningful conversation. Did you know you can grow more? You can grow more in one conversation with that gift of God sitting next to you than by reading a thousand articles or books. I'm not kidding. She is one of God's primary means of your sanctification. You'll grow just by being with her. That's how great God has made her. And something so great is not kicked around or ignored, right? It's given honor. So Peter reminds us of two things here, right? First, she's the weaker vessel. Right? He says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Okay. You need to recognize this. What does that mean? The woman as the weaker vessel. Okay. It reminds us, man, that God has made women, generally speaking, okay, with a weaker physical frame, right? Okay, this explains why men compete with men in the Olympics and women compete with women in the Olympics, right? We'd say it wouldn't be fair if they competed together, right? Well, why is that? Because we're not made the same, are we? Now, that doesn't mean that all men are physically stronger than all women. Man, they'd be running circles around us guys if we were in the same with those Olympic women, right? It's just a general reality, okay? So God calls men to be, therefore, how, what kind of a leader should you be? Careful, right? That means you will protect her, you will nourish her, and you'll take initiative to lead her spiritually. And the second thing that it reminds us of is this. Not only she is a weaker vessel, so you need to be more careful, but she is a joint heir with you of the grace of life, meaning of eternal life, salvation. You need to show them honor, not just because they're physically weaker, but because they are heirs with you of this same grace. Do you realize that she stands to inherit the glory and the praise that is due to all those who trust in Jesus when he comes back? And that fact alone should cause us to start treating her with some reverence and some respect. Because before she's your wife, she is God's child and his heir. Hey, you think God will stand for you to disrespect or to mistreat his own, his daughter? How would your father-in-law feel if you mistreated her? Well, you can multiply that a few times when you think of your heavenly father. No. He's willing to interrupt your prayer life, spiritually speaking, and to wake you up about it if you don't. So, what is the state of your union? What are you going to do to change the direction and the atmosphere of your union? Now, yesterday we, well, we learned some great things. And we learned some great things. And at the end, we gave out some gift cards that are at this enrichment, and in order to give some incentive to go out 
on a date, right? To be with your spouse, because we are pro-dating, okay? Date your spouse. But listen to me. The date ain't going to solve everything either. You know that, right? If we just go on a date, oh, that'll fix it? No. Okay. Because you can still go on on a date and be a jerk. You can still go out on a date and be overbearing, right? Peter didn't say go out on more dates, but he did say live with your wife. Okay. So, meaning be mindful about how you act day in and day out in your union. Okay. And if we get serious about what we have in our spouse, that man, that woman, then we won't have the list that we started with, right? We won't have this distant, cold, Take it for granted, cheap, self-centered, what is that? Uninterested, divided, lost. No, we'll have this. We'll have a closeness, warmth, <coughs> high regard, costly, right? Sacrificial, involved, of one mind, a marriage with purpose. In fact, it'll sound an awful lot like what our relationship with Jesus should look like, right? Yeah. So let me end with this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, with your marriage, you are founding a home. That needs a rule of life. And this rule of life is so important that God establishes it himself. Because without it, everything would be out of joint. Now, you may order your home as you like, except in one thing. The wife is to be subject to her husband. And the husband is to love his wife. Amen? All right. Well, we're going to pray that. But here's how we're going to do it. Husband, you pray for your wife. That's how we're going to end in prayer today. I'm going to go sit with my wife. You take initiative, and you pray for her right now. We've been talking about prayer. You know the kind of things you ought to pray for for her. And you know her more than anyone else. At least you ought to. And then, wife, you pray for your husband. And when it seems like we're done, then we'll sing together. So go ahead. You pray out loud for your spouse. Well, as you go from here, how about do this? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. And He is. Lord, thank You for Your Word to us today to cause us to reflect upon that which You have given us, this institution of marriage, the bedrock of our family. I pray that You would grant us to be intentional in new and exciting ways that we would see Christ more on display in the way we love and honor our spouse. We ask it for your name's sake, O Lord. Amen.